Thanks for downloading the Cross Defense Podcast. We're going to talk about our theology contest, The Most Certain, talking about your most interesting theological sentences this week. And then we dig into 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. This is such a glorious text, so important and so wonderful. So thanks for being part of the podcast. Uh, If you have any input, any questions for me or anything else you'd like to know about, you can contact me through the website, wolfmuller.co slash contact. All right, here's Cross Defense. Welcome to Cross Defense. Hey, God be praised. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Now, don't forget, you guys say, hey, wait a minute. Christ, that's for the Easter. It's Easter still. Easter is not a day. It's a season. <laughs> it conti- we continue to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the, from the well, probably the night before it happened. All the way till the ascension of Jesus, 40 days later. That's coming up next Thursday. We're going to talk a lot about the ascension next week, if I remember. I was going to start talking about it today, but I thought, well, I'll wait till next week. i got a great question about the ascension hanging around here on the desk. Well, that would be fun to talk about, but then I thought, well, now right, ascension's next week. We'll wait till then. So today, we got a couple things to we got a couple things to cover. i got some great submissions for the theology contest, the most certain, hashtag the most certain, our cool theology contest that has just started. And uh, and then we're going to finish up talking about 1 Corinthians 15. That was your homework to celebrate uh, to celebrate the resurrection. Now, the last week, we did our... So this, the way this... Now, now i got to help explain the rules a little bit because like, uh, like a couple people played this game right and about a dozen of you played it wrong. So now the way this... The, this is a trick, by the way. I don't know if you, I'll just explain. The trick is, it's just a hash, you know, the hashtag is a way to sort of tag stuff on social media. And, and the way these games work is you guys play the game and you put the hashtag on there, and then everyone can search the hashtag and see the hashtag, and it creates, you know, there's kind of, there's action there, social media action. Now, most of you guys emailed me your answers. We got to do, you got to do this in public. That's the way it works. So, so to, so to review, now last week the contest was, what is the best line from a, theological book you've read in the last couple of weeks and i got some great ones we're going to talk about them the the contest for this week what's today may the 11th so for the next seven days the hashtag contest the most certain is what how do you celebrate the resurrection of jesus how do you celebrate the resurrection of jesus so you gotta you gotta go onto the hashtag places like the facebook or the twitter or the Instagram. Maybe I didn't check Instagram. I don't actually know how you put a sentence on Instagram because it's all. You could put a picture. You put a nice picture that it represents what you're talking about. You could put a nice picture of your family. Wow. You put a f- picture of your family celebrating Easter, celebrating the resurrection, and then tell the story of how you celebrate the resurrection, and then put the hashtag, the most certain. And I'll pick a couple next week. I got to write it down. That's what we're doing. How you celebrate Easter. Now, to the business at hand, this week's contest, what's the best theological sentence that you've read lately? I've one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven that I'm very interested in talking about. I, don't, I haven't decided which one's going to win yet, but thanks for everyone who submitted them. Katie says, she quote, here's the quote, he, Jesus, will enter into our death to, uh, to put into it his own divine life destroying death from the inside out and that's from pastor whedon 
the eighth day godly habit, remembering the death and day of judgment. Uh, that's from Thanks, Praise, Serve, and Obey, Recover the Joys of Piety from Pastor Whedon. Pastor Whedon, by the way, is doing this great work on the on his Bible studies uh, that are a lot of fun to watch. And I have not read this book. I probably should. But it doesn't sound law enough for me, you know. It sounds too gospely. Jesus enters into our death, and he puts in it his divine life, so he destroys death from the inside out. That reminds me of how Luther used to preach about Easter. He would say that that uh, that death, like, the picture of Luther is like the grave, is like this mouth, and it swallows Jesus, and it chokes. <laughs> and it, you know, you got to give the, the grave the Heimlich maneuver, you know, and blah, out comes Jesus, like Jonah out of the fish, blah. The grave chokes on Jesus. The grave dies and spits him out. That's what that reminds me of. That's nice. Um, Judith submits two sentences. This is interesting. Satan snaked into the traitor's mouth as he took bread. I think that must be talking about Judas. Isn't it amazing that the betrayal of Judas, of our Lord, is connected in the gospel accounts to the taking of the Lord's Supper. Judas was there and he took the Lord's Supper. And in his taking of the Supper, the devil takes kind of final possession of him. Now, the text tells us that the devil had him before, but it kind of... That's from Anthony Esselin in The Hundredfold, another book I haven't read. But I like this Anthony Esselin. I read his articles in the in the journals. That's really great. And then uh, Judith also has this quotation... Only God can call to repentance, you know. That's quoted in by from the a book called The Pale Horse by Agatha Christie. I've never read Agatha Christie. I thought she was like a mystery writer. That's great. Uh here's another one. Uh I got two C. S. Lewis quotes. Yeah, have you heard this thing? I was I was watching some reformed guy on YouTube the other day. And uh and someone started quoting C. S. Lewis and they said and and he said, "It's not a it's not a conference till C.S. Lewis is quoted." <laughs> that's like, <laughs> I think that's kind of a funny thing. Well, we got two C.S. Lewis quotations for this week's con uh, hashtag the most certain contest. Here's one. This is from God in the Dock. C.S. Lewis says, "We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy." The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. Now that's a that's a profound theological insight. C.S. Lewis knew about he was a he you know he studied all the old stuff, so he knew this. And he says, look, it used to be, back in the old world, we had some sort of humility, and we would approach God as the one who's who's being accused as the one who's being judged. But now we approach God as if we are the judge and God is the one to be judged and we're going to pass judgment on him. This is, I don't know how, when you guys get into the conversations with your friends and family who are atheists or on their way or kind of whatever, if they, if this is the sense that you get from them, like they, they, it's not that they don't believed in, it's not that they don't believe in God. It's just that they're disappointed in God. Like, uh, you know, it's not, they're just kind of sitting there looking at God like, I would not run the universe that way. 
like you're like you're a, a neighbor, annoying neighbor who's always looking at your yard. Like I would certainly keep my yard nicer than that. Or you know, remember this when you had kids, but none of your friends had kids yet, and all your friends would look at your kids and be like, "When I have kids, they're not going to be like that." That's how the atheist is. Oh, if I was God, I wouldn't run things this way. Oh, really? That's how it's going to go. That's that's what basic. That's what basically atheism is. It's the idea. Well, look, if I was in charge, I could do better. All the suffering and everything, I would never put up with all this stuff. These greenhouse grass, gases, they'd be out of here. As soon as I'm in charge, man, God is just not running the show like he ought to. That's just the sort of modern sentiment. It's kind of ridiculous. Anyway, that's kind of a nice, that's a nice C.S. Lewis quote. And then there's one other one. This is funny. This is from Lisa who says, she quotes the Chronicles of Narnia. This is a funny story. Apparently, there's a, some point in the, in the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, which Aslan turns to another lion, and he says, us lions. And the, and the, and the response is this. This most pleased, uh, this, uh, the, oh, sorry. The most pleased of this lot was the other lion who kept running about everywhere, pretending to be very busy, but, in, uh, but really in order to say to everyone he met, did you hear what he said? Us lions. That means him and me. Us lions. That's what I like about Aslan. No side, no standoffishness. Us lions. That meant him and me. At least he went on saying this till Aslan had loaded him up with three dwarfs, one dryad, two rabbits, and a hedgehog. That steadied him a bit. Now that is great. <laughs> this contest is great. You guys are reading some great stuff out there. Can you imagine? Us. This is, that reminds me of one of my favorite words in all of the scripture, the word my. You know the word my shows up every time the word church shows up. Jesus says, I will build my church. Or is this kind of the joy of, remember the resurrection when, when, when Jesus says to Mary Magdalene, go tell the disciples and Peter that I, are, uh, uh, that I have not yet, or to meet me in Galilee, I have not yet ascended to my God and to, and to your God, to my Father and your Father. Jesus shares God the Father with us. <laughs> okay. All great submissions. I think the winner, though, unfortunately, the person who won this, I haven't read their quote yet, but they kind of cheated because they quoted from the Augsburg Confession. Uh, now, you guys are, remember the Augsburg Confession was this confession that was made in Augsburg, <laughs> 1530, the Catholics and, the, and Emperor Charles V said, hey, uh, Lutherans, what are you guys on about? Like, why are you so upset about things? And what do you believe, anyways? So they wrote it up, the Augsburg Confession. And Paul quotes from the Augsburg Confession. He says, hashtag the most certain, quote, Our churches teach that there is forgiveness of sins for those who have fallen after baptism whenever they are converted. Augsburg Confession 12, repentance, first sentence. That, that little article right there is one of my favorite. Paul, you went to the very heart of things for me. That's the first time the word comfort appears in the Book of Concord, right there in, Apolog or in Augsburg 12. And it's also where the Reformers start working on this definition of repentance. Repentance has two parts, contrition and faith. That the law comes, whoosh. Okay, imagine repentance like this. Because how do you normally think of repentance? We normally think of repentance as an act of our own will, like... Like we just, we're, how does it describe? Like you're going this way and you stop and you turn around and you go the other way. Like it's our, like it's all us. Like it's all what we're doing. That's how we normally think of, of repentance. 
we choose, we decide, we switch, or whatever. But the but the biblical definition of repentance is being brought out in this place in the Augsburg Confession, and, and it is what happens when the Lord takes his law and applies it to us, and he takes his gospel and he applies it and he applies it to us. The law is God's commands that tell us what to do, how to live, what, how we are supposed to, to think and to act and to speak in order to be holy as God is holy. It's God's immutable will. It comes, and, and when the law comes to us, we recognize that we are not holy. We recognize that we are sinners. We recognize that we are unholy and in need of Lord's mercy. And then the gospel comes along and, and teaches us Christ, shows us the death of Jesus, brings the benefit of Jesus whoops, right to us. It's the good news. It's the, it's, the, it's the one who rushes to tell us that the grave is empty, that the Lord has triumphed, that the death of Jesus is good. So the gospel comes to us, and, and now there's this joy and confidence and faith that's born in our own hearts, and that's repentance, contrition and faith, sorrow and trust, to know our sin and to know our Savior. Those are the two parts of repentance, and then, and then there's fruit that follows. There's the good works that follow. There's the changed heart that follows. There's suffering with patience that follows. All the stuff follows repentance, comes after repentance. But, but repentance is this contrition and faith. Beautiful stuff. All right, Paul. You win. You, you forced me to win. I couldn't, I couldn't give it to anybody else. Uh, this, this is the, the contest winner for hashtag the most certain. Our churches teach that there is forgiveness of sins for those who have fallen after baptism whenever they are converted. It's talking specifically about the old Donatist controversy. They said that if you, if you fell, you couldn't be restored. And I said, no, 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 no. You can, the Lord is always bringing us back, always returning us, always giving us this gift of salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. All right, well done, Paul. Uh, for those of you who want to play this week, post up on the Instagram. Or what did I hear someone say it? I'm going to say this and sound really cool. The Graham. Man, I even say cool words like a dummy. The Gram. You can post it up on the Gram or the Twitter or the Facebook and hashtag the most certain. What does your family do to celebrate Easter? And I'll see those, and we'll talk about them next week if I remember. Fantastic. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about First Corinthians. What's the time here? How are we doing? We've got three minutes. We want to talk about First Corinthians chapter 15. Let me give you the setup, and we'll go to the break and come back and talk about it. You'll have time to get out your Bibles or your... Bloop, bloop, the phone. You can look at the text, make sure I'm reading the right thing. First Corinthians 15, Paul's writing to the Corinthians who had all sorts of problems. I mean, remember, Corinth was really a disastrous place. It was the sea, it was on the isthmus of Corinth. What was this? So Greece kind of went down like this, and then there's this thin little, like, one mile, two mile strip of land, and then it goes down into the bottom part of Greece. And right there on the canal, right on that little strip of land, was the city of Corinth. And in the ancient world, they had a they had a road made out of logs. And the slave they they would they would sail their boats up to the shore, and then the slaves would pull the boats across that mile and a half, over up over the hill and down. They were always trying to build a canal there, and they couldn't do it till like the French figured it out. I don't know, in like 1870, or I can't even remember, but. All the ancient Roman guys, all the ancient Caesars and everything were always trying to build that canal. But in the meantime, the sailors would go off their boats and they would go up to the top of the hill in, in Corinth and worship Athena with the priestesses in the, uh, in the temple there. 
There was over a thousand temple prostitutes in that, if I remember right, until the earthquake came and knocked the place over, like the year 300 B.C. But still, even in the time of Paul, to be a Corinthian was to be a little bit loose. Not a little bit. It was to be loose according to the Sixth Commandment. So the Corinthian church was having all sorts of Sixth Commandment problems. They were having all sorts of of uh, fights in and amongst themselves. They had divisions in there. They said, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. They had all these theological problems, all these personal problems. In the worship service, it was wild in Corinth. They, people, they were speaking in tongues and no one was interpreting. Everyone came with their own sermon and no one knew what was going on. That's where Paul has to say, look, God is a God of order and so forth. But one of the biggest problems is that they doubted the resurrection. They doubted the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says, if if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ isn't raised, then we're of all people most to be pitied. And and if we're if Christ isn't raised, then we're still in our sins. Everything depends on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what he had talked about so far. And we're going to jump into verse 29 when we get back. So let's go to the break now. It'll be a quick one. And we'll be back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 here on Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. I forgot to say that. Thanks for being part of the fun. Uh, stick with us for just a couple of minutes. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. Each weekday on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah, we share and discuss stories of living boldly Lutheran. Including missionary updates, mercy work, events and topics applicable to your daily vocations, and maybe some fresh dark roast. The Coffee Hour weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO, underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The prophet Isaiah chapter 55 verses 10 and 11. Begin and conclude your day with the word that accomplishes the purposes for which it is sent. Morning prayer at 7 a.m. and evening prayer at 5 p.m. Weekdays on KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. The broadcasts of morning prayer and evening prayer are underwritten by Lutherans for Life. I don't know why they don't just let me sing the bump in. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas, celebrating the resurrection with you 
on the radio, on the YouTubes. We got streaming live, and we got a correction of great connection from Michael, who said, I thought the Corinthians worshipped Aphrodite, not Athena. Right, it was Aphrodite. Athena was in Athens. Aphrodite, the big Aphrodite temple there. You know, every time you... This is a big church growth plan. We want to build a we want to build a temple. It's way up on this hill, and you thought, who would who in the world would walk all the way up? It's like miles and miles up to the top of this big hill in Corinth. Who's going to walk all the way up there? I said, well, they had a plan to get the people in. But we're going to pick up here, and oh, we're studying we're studying the resurrection. First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 is our homework, and we got last week to verse 28, and we stopped there, and I'm looking at the text and realizing why, because verse 29 is a tough one. But let's pick it up, First Corinthians 15, 29, and, uh, and start working our way through here. Paul says, let me, maybe back up to get a running start. Verse 27, for God put all things in subjection under his feet, that's Psalm 110, Psalm 8. It's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So the idea is that God is putting everything under the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is going to hand it to the Father, and everything will be subject to God the Father. This beautiful gift that Jesus gives, the, the Father gives the world to Jesus, Jesus gives the world to, to the Father, back and forth, just quite wonderful. And then verse 29 says this, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Jesus Christ our Lord, our Lord I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, let's just talk about here. What does this mean to be baptized for the dead? To be baptized on behalf of the dead? I don't know. I know that it doesn't mean that you can be, once you're dead, someone can be baptized for you by proxy. That's just kind of runs against everything that the Bible says about baptism. My best guess is that this refers to an old custom in Corinth, and that has been sort of the general consensus from the church, both from ancient days and also down to Luther. Luther says that I think even maybe Jerome or St. Augustine or something had this understanding that in Corinth they had the practice of going to the cemetery to be baptized. And so they would, and so it was a, a strange uh, but kind of beautiful local custom that whenever it was time for a baptism, that the Corinthian folks would go out to the cemetery to, cemetery to do it, and they would say, in other words, I'm going to, I'm dying in this baptism. My baptism is a burial with Christ, and I'm not afraid to die, confessing Jesus, and I know that because of my baptism, I'll be raised from the dead. That this is just a temporary place. So in order to confess the fact that we're buried with Jesus through baptism into death and that we're raised to walk with newness of life, in order to confess the fact that they weren't afraid to be martyred after they were baptized, and to confess the fact that baptism meant that they would physically stand on the last day, they would do this, they would practice cemetery baptisms. Now we don't have... It's a guess, I suppose, because we don't have any other indication from outside of the scriptures that this would happen. But this has kind of been the ancient understanding, and it seems to make sense. So 
why why are people baptized on the dead? So not on behalf of the dead, but actually on top of the dead in the cemetery. If the dead are not raised at all, why are you baptized over them? And then Paul goes on to say, verse 30, why are we in danger in every hour? I die every day. Now, Paul doesn't stop breathing every day, although there were probably a couple days when he did, like the day he was stoned and dragged out of town and all this sort of stuff. Whoa, man. And this is a really quite something. That Paul that we go that we that Paul's willing to suffer in this life. He goes on to say verse thirty two, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now that's the Epicurean thing. If you're an Epicurean creed, or if you're an Epicurean, that's your creed. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If you go to church on Epicurean church and you sit there and they say, Okay, now we confess our common faith, and then they all say, Let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die amen they don't make the sign of the cross they probably do something like this i don't know exactly how it goes in the epicurean church they raise a glass cheers you know in other words saint paul says look if the dead are not raised then why not just why not just live it up if our hope is in this life only, we are of all the most to be pitied. This is a, Jesus does not come to us to make our lives better. Remember this story, this old Ray Comfort story? You guys know Ray Comfort, that New Zealand evangelist? I kind of like, he's an evangelical guy, but he's probably the closest you can get to law and gospel. I, I sent Ray Comfort a copy of C.F.W. Walter's Law and Gospel one time. I hope he gets it. I hope he reads it. i got to meet him one day. I think he could make a good Lutheran. And he tells a story. He, well, like he got he became famous because, because he talked about the, the, this danger in American in the American church, and that is this idea that hey, Jesus makes your life better. And so he tells the parable of the two people flying on an airplane. So you're on an airplane, and one guy's in back and coach, and the other guy's in first class. I guess that's actually how it could be now, just like two people on an airplane. That's how few people are flying these days. But you got to imagine the airplane and. And there's some turbulence, and the reason there's turbulence is because the plane is going to crash. It's starting to fall apart, and it's going to crash. Now, the the flight attendant in the back goes to the person sitting in coach and says, Hey, here is a, what's that thing called what, that catches you from the, here's a parachute. That's what it is. Here's a parachute. Put it on. Strap it on, because the plane is going down, and this is going to keep you alive. So the person sitting in coach, whoosh, on the parachute, whoosh, tighten it up. Mm, they're holding on to it. Now, in front, in first class, she didn't want to inconvenience the, the, the people there. So the first class flight attendant goes and hands the person the parachute, and they say, here's a parachute. It'll make your flight better. It'll make your flight better. They say, oh, thanks. So they put the parachute in their lap, and they're looking at it. Oh, this is keeping my legs warm. But then the plane jostles a little bit, and it bounces around, and it knocks their book over. They say, this isn't helping. So they take the parachute and they stuff it under the, they stuff it under the seat. But it's getting in the way of their legs and it's it's they're it's kind of cramping them. So they take the parachute. This is this lady's lying. This is this parachute's making my flight worse. So she takes a parachute and puts it in the overhead bag. Now in the back, every time the plane jostles, every time there's a creak or something like this, the guy tightens up the parachute and holds onto it even tighter. Now and and why? In the back, they said the parachute's going to save you from dying. In the front, they said the parachute's going to make things better. It's a lie. If the parachute is there to make things better, 
That's a lie. Jesus does not claim to make your life better. In fact, Jesus says as soon as he's got you, you now become a target of the enemy. You become a target for the devil. Remember that uh, that Gary Larson cartoon of the, it's like two deer standing in the woods, and one deer has like a target on his chest, and and the other guy says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. <laughs> that's how, that's how, that's how it is with baptism. It's a target placed on us for the devil who starts shooting at us. He's after you. Paul says, "Why I die every day. I get dragged around. I get thrown into jail. I get beaten. I get stoned. I get shipwrecked. Why? Because I want a better life? No. Because I'm living for the life to come. Because I'm, cause I've got my eye on the resurrection. Because Jesus gives us more than just this life. He gives us the promise of the eternal life. If the, if the dead were not raised, Paul says this, if the dead were not raised, if Jesus were not raised, then we should all be Epicurean. I don't know, we begrudge our, our Epicurean neighbors for being Epicurean, don't we? I mean, we look at this world and we're like, all oh, people are just living for pleasure. There's the response, the kind of stoic response. People are like, no, pain isn't all that bad and everything else like this. But, you know, really, Epicureanism kind of makes sense. If there's no resurrection, if there's no judgment, if there's no God, or if God doesn't care, then eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. That's it. But there is a resurrection. There is a judgment. In fact, you know, the old Epicurean business was Epicurus taught that we should try to live an untroubled life and that the things that trouble us in this life are twofold. They're theological things. The idea, number one, that there's a judgment after death, and number two, that the gods are involved in this life. And so Epicurus says we can't believe those things because they are troubling. Not because they're wrong, but because they're troubling. you got to throw them out. The problem is they're true. There is a judgment after this life. There is a life of the world to come. There is a God who is involved. Jesus, who sits on the throne. These are all truths. If I fought with... Uh, Paul says, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought with a beast at Ephesus, if the dead aren't raised? Let us eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. I'm in verse 33 now. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. In other words, Paul is saying, you guys are, you guys are, are, are leaning over towards this Epicurean, Corinthian kind of life. And it's wrong. It's dangerous. And it's shameful. Now he's going to go on to address the objections. We've got to move a little. I'm kind of going slow here. We've got to maybe speed up just a little bit. So verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul says, in other words, <laughs> remember on Holy Tuesday when Jesus was in the temple and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there, they were arguing with each other, and and they came to trick Jesus, and they told the story about the woman who was married, and then her husband died, and so then she got married to the man's brother, and then he died, and then she got married to his brother, and this happened seven times. Seven brothers get married to the same woman. And I just think of that story and think, boy, how would you like to be like the sixth brother 
when it's time for the funeral, you know? I mean, when it's time for the wedding. You've been to you've been to five funerals of your brothers and now you're standing there to get married to this lady. Like, what is going on? <laughs> they tell this story to try to throw Jesus to try to trick him. Like, how can you possibly believe in the ridiculousness of the resurrection? Imagine this imaginary thing. Well, the Corinthians had done the same thing. How, how, how do you get a body that doesn't die? All bodies need to die. What happens if you're raised and then someone hits your head with a rock? What happens then? Or what if you're raised and you don't, and you don't eat any food and you just keep on living? What kind of body even is that, you crazy Paul Christian teacher about the resurrection? How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? Paul puts them in their place, verse 36. You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So Paul says, I'll teach you, I'll, I'll explain it to you, and I'll give you a little picture. It goes like this. You, remember, you know how you guys go out and farm, and you take a seed, which looks like a little rock, and you put it in the ground, and then something glorious comes out, some living plant? comes up out of the ground now there's a continuity between the seed and the stalk there's a continuity between what you plant and what grows there's a connection to the thing that's that's buried and the thing that sprouts forth but they are totally different the seed is totally different than the plant and this is the analogy that Paul uses to describe the resurrection that this body, there's a, con there's a continuity, number one, there's a continuity between the body that's, that's buried and the body that's raised. And yet there is, a, there is a totally different kind of glory. Now this is a mysterious thing that we cannot totally understand, but Paul just wants to give us this picture. So you imagine, and maybe imagine this. Can you imagine uh, a peach seed you know a peach seed looks like a little kind of rotten brain you got a picture the peach seed and that is your body and it's planted and then you imagine the peach tree that's your resurrected body so there's a continuity but there's a there's a complete difference but god gives a body as he has chosen to each kind of seed its own body so we don't want to make the danger. There's two kind of dangers here. On the one hand, we don't want to think that the body that's raised is completely different than the body that's, that's buried. It's like a totally different body. For that, our proof, our number one proof, is the resurrection of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was buried, his body was buried. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, his body was raised from the dead. The body of Jesus was raised. His tomb was empty. It's not like God went and created a totally different body for Jesus and left the old one with holes in it in the grave and gave him a new fancy one. No, it's the same body, and so it is for us. Our graves will be just as, uh, just as empty as the grave of Jesus. Our bo these bodies will be raised. But we don't want to make the other mistake and to say that the raised body is just like this body. You know, people say, Pastor, maybe I don't want this body. I want to I wanna upgrade. <laughs> I want to turn this one in and get a better one. Well, it will be better. Just like the, the, the tree is to the, to the pit, so our resurrected body is to this buried body. 
We've got to talk more about that because Paul's going to talk about the glory of the resurrected body. That's what's coming up next. But we are, we are ready. Is this right? We are ready for a break already? I can't believe how fast this goes. So let's take a quick break now, and we're going to come back, and we'll pick it up there. Verse 39, not all flesh is the same. Uh, with Paul's uh, unfolding of the different kinds of flesh. You're listening to Cross Defense, and I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa, host of Thy Strong Word, taking your questions as we go through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter. Let's read together with guest pastors from around the country and the church around the world, taking chapters and verses together in context, every passage fitting together in the Lord Jesus, because He is the Word of God. Let's read together. Thy Strong Word, weekday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Underwritten by Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHFmissions.org. Welcome back to CrossFit. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, your host, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches here in Austin, Texas. And we're talking about the resurrection of the body, but a, cha- a question came up in the chat. We're live streaming on the YouTubes right now also. And ex-Muslim writes, hey, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus. I used to be a Muslim. Believer in Jesus. I haven't been baptized. I'm secret I'm, because I can't come out uh, publicly because of this. What can I do? Am I saved without baptism? We talk about theologically the necessity of baptism because Jesus talks about it. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But if there's no way to be baptized, uh, then we know that faith in Christ does save. So we can be confident. We believe in Jesus. Jesus has us. And that Jesus will bring us to baptism, especially as we pray and ask for it. Um, At some point, and this is very, very difficult. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I confess that I'm a believer in Jesus and I have to be killed for it. Uh, but we we have this great courage of studying the martyrs have, that have gone before us is that when it comes down to it, if it's asked of us, do we believe in Jesus? We confess him, and we have the sure promise of eternal life, even if someone were to take our earthly life away. So we pray for the gift of baptism, and even though it might be risky, we look for that gift of baptism. Uh, and uh, we'll, I'll, I'll include you in our prayers and that the Lord would continue to strengthen you in the faith, and also to bring you uh, to, to the gift of baptism, that the Lord would provide that for you. You don't need a pastor or a church. Uh, in an emergency situation, any Christian can baptize. And remember the way, that, uh, the way that emergency baptism is applied. This is good for all of Christians to remember. Simply water is applied to the person in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If there's time, the Lord's Prayer is prayed. If there's time, the, a creed is confessed. If there's time, scriptures are read. Uh, But the essential thing is water and the name. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So um, you cannot baptize yourself, though. So if the Lord has rescued and redeemed you and and you're the only Christian around, then, then you are waiting for the Lord to provide another Christian to provide that gift of baptism. So, uh, so God be praised uh, for that. All right, we were talking about, and thanks for the question. 
Really wonderful. Um, Paul says, we're in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, talking about the resurrection, because this is a homework. I think I gave everybody the homework to read 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter, and then I never did. So now I thought, well, I got a, I got a radio show. Might as well read the Bible with you guys. So we're working our way through 1 Corinthians 15. This is beautiful stuff. Now, Paul says in verse 39, not all flesh is the same. There's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish, another for heavenly bodies. He says there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earth is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. That's amazing to me how Paul's working backwards through the days of creation. So remember on day, on day four, you have sun, moon, stars. And then on day five, you have birds and fish. And then on day six, you have animals, and then you have people. And Paul says there's, all the flesh has a different glory, people and animals and birds and fish and stars and sun and moon and so forth. They all have a different glory. There's a different, I was looking at a, at a at a blue jay is a blue jay. I was looking at a blue jay earlier, and there it is with its colors and its feathers and this kind of daintiness to it. Although it's pretty big, it's kind of a sturdy bird. And I was looking at it. that's a, just a different kind of glory. Looking at that thing versus looking at a dolphin or looking at the moon. Anyway, Paul says so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown? Here's the analogy extended. What is stone, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image, listen to this, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now that is quite wonderful, quite wonderful. You could put a column down there. And Paul starts out this whole conversation by saying, look, there's different kinds of glory. You got human glory and animal glory and bird glory and fish glory and sun glory and moon glory, different kind of glory. So it is with the resurrection. You got... What you got this glo the glory of this life and the glory of the life to come. You have the glory of mortality and the glory of immortality. You have the glory of the natural and the glory of the spiritual. And then he uses this uh, almost contradictory term. He says there's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. Now a lot of people take that or try to take it to mean that like we have this is our natural body made out of flesh and blood and hair and stuff and then after death we go into a spiritual body and we become like Casper the friendly you know harp playing ghosts floating around and doing this kind of very ethereal sort of ghostly spiritual sort of stuff no we know that that our body that's what it says our body our soma our stuff is raised 
but it is raised perfect. It's raised free from death. It's raised free from sin. It's raised free from temptation. It's raised free from trouble and sickness and tears and all this sort of stuff so that it is perfect in every way perfect. Holy, not not perfect and like I can jump as high as I can ever jump or something like that. Not physically perfect, but spiritually perfect. In fact, perfect enough to be able to stand before God and see him face to face and not be destroyed. That is the glory of the body that we will be raised with. It'll be a body that can handle the beatific vision. It'll be a body that's able to without being destroyed it'll be able to receive the glory of God in its fullness that's the gift of the resurrection that will have a spiritual body <laughs> a body that's fit to stand before the Lord just as Adam was from the dust so the second Adam, Jesus, is from heaven, and just as we were from the dust, we will be with Jesus in heaven. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. We are being minted. You know, that's the word image. is the, oh, it's, the it's kind of the shaping of the thing. And so God created us, and he, foomp, we are created in the image of God, and then foomp, we fell, and we are in the image of death, and then Seth is born, foomp, he has the, he's in the image and likeness of Adam. And all of us have the image of Adam until Jesus came, the image of the only begotten uh, of the Father. And then we now are in, we are born according to that image in baptism. So we're born naturally. We, we are born from our mom and our dad. We are born in the image of, of Adam. But, but now, as we're born in baptism, we have the image of Jesus. We bear the image of the man of heaven. I must tell you this, brothers, and now we get to the mystery, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? This is so glorious. I mean, this text is so wonderful. I don't know how many times I've stood over the open grave of people. This grave, this text is always part of the committal service. Stood over the open grave and, and confessed this to the world and the flesh and the devil who wants to doubt and despair and think that the grave is it and to say, look, no, no, this is not the end. This is not the end. There's a reason that Christians put a RIP on the grave. Rest in peace because, because death is simply asleep. We got to look up those old dulce nomine morte, the sweet names of death, uh, being gathered with the Father to live as Christ, to die as gain, to depart in peace, and this one to sleep. When Paul says, "We not all will sleep," he's saying that not all will die, but all will be changed. Now, this First Corinthians fifteen fifty one is a classic text for that strange doctrine of the rapture. This uh, it's a new doctrine. I mean, a couple hundred years old. 
People sometimes say that they can find evidences of it in the ancient church. That's kind of tenuous. I think certainly it became popular, at least. We can say that about 170, 180 years ago. And it's the idea that Jesus still has work to do with Israel, so he's going to come and whoosh, get the Christians out of the way and bring them up to heaven. The problem is it's not at all that what's going on in the text. Paul is simply asking the question, what happens to the people who are alive and not dead when Jesus comes back? And he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. Not all of us are going to be raised from the dead, because some of us are going to be alive when Jesus comes back. Not all will sleep, but all will be changed. In other words, this mortality, that, we, that if Jesus comes back, we cannot just simply walk into his presence. If Jesus comes back, we cannot simply walk into the glory of God and see it in this, in this mortal body. We have to be changed. So not all will sleep, but all will be changed. And how will it happen? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, the resurrection of the body, and we shall be changed, the resurrection of the living. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, then the saying is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Wow. That's just great. It's from Habakkuk, I think. I can't remember where this text is from. Death is swallowed up in victory. But think of it. Death there. Here's death. This just this consumer. Death. The, if you think of the grave, as open graves is like these open mouths. And there's someone. It's like hungry, hungry hippo. There's a person. There's a person. Whom, whom. Death is just consuming everybody. And it never gets hungry. Is there a proverb? The grave is never empty. Boom, boom, boom. Death is just chewing everybody up. But now death is itself swallowed up where's your victory where's your sting and then this theologically the most glorious the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain can you okay imagine it this way Imagine you're sitting in the room. Imagine first that you're allergic to bees. No, imagine that you're allergic to uh, to murder hornets. Is, is that what's happening now? The murder hornets? <laughs> this is like there's not enough to worry about. Now they've got the hornets that are going to kill all the bees. Okay, imagine you're allergic to the murder hornet, and you're sitting in a room, and in through the window flies a, a, a murder hornet the size of a loaf of bread. And he's got this stinger. It's got to be a bee. Okay, a murder hornet bee. And he's got this nine-inch stinger. And he's flying around, and he's after you. Now, you panic, right? I mean, this thing gets a hold of you. You're, you're it. It's, you're over. You're dead. You see on the side, it says, it says the law. <laughs> no, how does it say? It says death. And then on the stinger, it says sin. And then the dripping poison coming out says the law. And it's after you. This bee is after you. Bzz, and everybody's running and panicking and hiding under the table and doing everything they can do to get away from this thing. But into the middle of this chaos walks Jesus. And instead of running away from this bee, Jesus walks up to the bee and wha-pow, right in his hands. This nine-inch stinger is embedded in his hands and his side. And he takes it for you. And now this bee flies off, and he, has, he doesn't have his stinger anymore. He's just a huge and somewhat annoying housefly. And I heard somewhere that when bees sting someone, then they go and they die. 
Jesus has taken the sting of death. He's taken the stinger of death. He's taken the poison of death. He's taken it all for you so that there is no more sting. The sting of death, this is what Paul says, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, who gives you the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's nothing more to be afraid of. Death is asleep. And when you sleep, you know what you do? You wake up. Whenever Jesus invents this name for death, sleep, he's thinking about the resurrection. She sleeps, and I go to wake her up. Lazarus is sleeping, and we're going to wake him up. And one day, Jesus will stand on the earth, and he will call our names, and we also will be raised up with him and to him. God, God be praised. Christ is risen. And his resurrection gives us the freedom from the fear of death, the freedom from the fear of the grave, the freedom from sin, the freedom through the forgiveness of all of our sins to live and to die in his name. Fantastic. All right, there it is, 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks for being part of the fun today. By the way, we're at the end, which I cannot believe. It just goes too fast. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and this has been Cross Defense. We'll do this again, Lord willing, uh, next Monday. Remember our uh, our theology contest, hashtag the most certain. Tell me how you and your family celebrate the resurrection. You can tag that pictures or stories with uh, with how you celebrate this victory of Jesus over our sin, our death, and our grave. Uh, our devil, how he wins the victory. Tag that, the most certain, and we'll talk about it next week. Until then, God be praised. Bye-bye. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for all the way to the end, sticking with it. If there was something helpful, I'd love to hear about it. And if you have any questions, please send them my way. And if there was something here that you think, oh, you know, I've got a friend or someone in my family that I think would enjoy that, uh, please do pass it on to them. So happy that we can share these things, and that's how. That's how word gets around, so thanks for doing that as well. And don't forget this week's theology contest, hashtag the most certain. How do you celebrate the resurrection? I'm looking forward to hearing your stories. Thanks again. God's peace be with you.